Welcome to this episode of Beads Podcast, a weekly reflection on church history with Dr. Michael A.G. Haken. Dr. Haken serves as the chair and professor of church history at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. He's also a fellow of the Royal Historical Society in recognition of his contributions to historical scholarship. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. When judged from the vantage point of the New Testament, the entire medieval project of elevating some Christians to the status of saints seems an illegitimate undertaking. In the New Testament yardstick of Christianity, all believers are saints set apart for God and declared holy by virtue of union with Christ. A number of these saints were, of course, remarkable Christians. Though not worthy of the elite status accorded by the medieval church, they are still men and women with whom we should be acquainted. Take Patrick of Ireland, for example, or St. Patrick, as he's often referred to. While history has been enormously generous to Patrick, a patron saint of Ireland celebrated by millions every March 17th, for instance, it has also obscured the real man who is found in particularly one place, his two genuine writings, his confession and his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus. In these two texts, we see a man overwhelmed by the grace of his calling to be a minister of the gospel and a missionary to the Irish at the very edge of the world. Before we look at Patrick, though, let's sketch the world that he grew up in. When Patrick was born around the year 389, The Romans had been in Britain for roughly 350 years. South of Hadrian's Wall, they had crisscrossed the land with a network of Roman roads, urban centres of importance, such as the towns we now know as York and Gloucester and the City of London, had been developed, and dotting the countryside, there were lavish villas that had been built by upper-class Romanised Britons. Among these wealthy Britons, there grew to be an appreciation of and desire for Roman culture, and consequently they sought to ensure that their children received a proper Roman education. The Roman historian Tacitus, in the first century AD, depicts this eagerness of the British upper classes to acquire Roman culture in a famous text from his biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, the Roman general who was instrumental in extending much of Roman rule throughout Britain. According to Tacitus, Agricola educated the sons of the British chiefs in the liberal arts. The result was that instead of loathing the Latin language, they became eager to speak it effectively. In the same way, our national dress came into favour, and the toga was everywhere to be seen. It's not surprising that the members of this social strata became genuinely bilingual, conversant in both their native British and the Latin of their rulers. On the other hand, The lower classes, especially those in rural areas, probably knew little, if any, Latin. The ability of Patrick to write in Latin, albeit imperfectly, as we shall see, is a clue to his social origins. He was from the upper class of Romano-British society. At the close of the 4th century, however, the comfortable world of the Romanized British upper class was about to be shattered, never to be restored. During the last quarter of that century, the empire suffered a number of severe body blows which would precipitate the total collapse of imperial rule in the West in the following century. Those momentous events were naturally not without impact on Roman Britain. In the summer of 407, Constantine III, a usurper who had been elevated to imperial power by the legions in Britain, crossed the channel ostensibly to repel a variety of Germanic barbarians who had crossed the Rhine River 
during the winter of 406, 407, when the Rhine, contrary to all expectations and contrary to all Roman experience, had froze completely and providing a highway for these uh, Germanic warriors to cross, roughly 200,000 of them. The legions never returned. In the years that followed, the British sought to organize their own defense against various raiders, Saxon raiders from the east, and hit-and-run attacks by Irish pirates from the west. But with the departure of the legions, economic and cultural decay started to set in. In the words of the historian R.P.C. Hansen, towns began to be deserted, villas abandoned, no more coins were minted, the Roman system of education probably collapsed. But what did not collapse, or leave with the Roman legions, was the Christian witness on the island. While Patrick's writings constitute some of the earliest literary evidence from an actual member of the British church, there is written testimony going back to the second century regarding the presence of Christianity in the British Isles. The second century Christian authors, Tertullian and Origen, both mentioned the existence of Christians in Britain, thus testifying to the fact that Christianity in Britain was sufficiently well-founded and its membership sufficiently large that Christians in North Africa and Alexandria would know of its existence. In the 190s, Tertullian states in his Adversus Judeus, uh, or Against the Jews, that Christianity had spread so far it had reached Britain and beyond the Antonine Wall. In whom else have all the nations believed, Tertullian wrote, that in the Christ who has already come, Parthians and other nations, such as different races of the Gaetuli, many borders of the Maori, all the confines of Spain and various tribes of Gaul, also places in Britain which, though inaccessible to the Romans, have yielded to Christ. In the following century, Origen, the Alexandrian exegete, would state that the Christian faith had secured adherence in Britain. Whenever did the land of Britain agree on the worship of one God before the arrival of Christ, he asked. From these statements we can state this. British Christianity was sufficiently well-founded and its membership sufficiently large that Christians in North Africa and Alexandria were convinced of its existence. How did Christianity first come to the shores of Britain, though, is impossible to determine. W.H.C. Friend has plausibly suggested that it was brought thither by merchants or by soldiers garrisoned in Britain. Be this as it may, it would not have taken root among the native Britons as it did if it had not been for persons like Irenaeus, who we looked at a few weeks ago. Irenaeus learned Gaulish, the language of the Celts living in Gaul, in order to reach them with the gospel. To reach the native Britons with the gospel, there would have had to have been some who, like Irenaeus, were willing to learn the barbarous dialect of the British natives. But up until the 4th century, very little is known in the way of either literary or archaeological evidence about the church in Britain. With the 4th century, however, there appear a number of statements about the British church and its bishops by contemporary authors. One which is of some import is that made by Athanasius of Alexandria to the effect that the British Church had fully assented to the Nicene Creed and its condemnation of Arianism. As we shall see, a large part of Patrick's spiritual bequest to the Irish will be a doctrine of the Trinity that is in full accord with that of Nicaea. Such is the context, social, political, and ecclesiastical, into which the life and career of Patrick must be placed, if it is to be properly appreciated. Now, the dates of Patrick's birth and death have been, and still are, the subject of much debate. R.P.C. Hansen has put forward a fairly convincing argument in favor of placing Patrick's birth circa 389, 390, and his death some 70 years later, circa 460. But he admits that these dates possess no finality. What is certain is that Patrick is a product of Britain 
in the late 4th century, and his missionary activity in Ireland falls mostly within the first half of the 5th century. The broad outline of Patrick's career is fairly plain. At the beginning of his confession, he tells us of his family background and how his life at home was traumatically interrupted. Here's what he says in Confession, chapter 1. I am Patrick, a sinner, most unlearned, the least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. My father was Calpornius, a deacon, son of Patitus, a presbyter of the village Benavan Tobernii. He had a country seat nearby, and there I was taken captive. I was then about 16 years of age. I did not know the true God. I was taken into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so, because we turned away from God and did not keep his commandments and did not obey our bishops, who used to remind us of our salvation. And the Lord brought over us the wrath of his anger and scattered us among many nations, even unto the utmost parts of the earth, where now my littleness is placed among strangers. This important passage tells us a number of, of vital things about Patrick and the world he came from. First, Patrick was raised in what appears to have been a Christian home. He states in the text that his father, Calpornius, was a deacon. Then this text also gives some indication on the general whereabouts of Patrick's home, the village Benavent Tabernii, or as Mary de Paior spells it, Bonaventa Bernii. Unfortunately, this village has not been identified. Romano-British village names, which can be located on the map, are few and far between. Nevertheless, it is probable that this village was near the western or southwestern coast of Britain, where it would have been within easy striking distance of Irish raiders. More importantly, the mention of his father's villa, which was near this village, provides solid evidence that Patrick was born into the upper crust of Romano-British society and was accustomed to wealth and comfort. Finally, there is Patrick's description of himself as most unlearned, rusticissimus, a number of times in his confession, Patrick's bemoan, Patrick bemoans the fact that his education was deficient. For instance, in Confession 9, he admits, I have not studied like the others, who thoroughly imbibed law and sacred scripture, and never had to change from the language of their childhood days, but were able to make it still more perfect. In our case, what I had to say had to be translated into a tongue foreign to me, as can be easily proved from the savour of my writing, which portrays how little instruction and training I've had in the art of words. While Patrick's contemporaries were becoming progressively skillful in their use of Latin as a literary tool, he was a slave in Ireland, having to speak the language of his captors, primitive or old Irish. His education in Latin had been severely curtailed, and when, much later in life, he came to write his confession, he often struggled to express himself clearly. So, at the age of 16, Patrick found himself violently torn from all that was familiar to him and transported as a slave to the west coast of Ireland. As a result of this intensely traumatic experience, Patrick turned to God. Here are his words in Confession, chapter 2. And there, that is in Ireland, the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who had regard for my objection and mercy on my youth and ignorance. No longer a rebel, indifferent to the claims of God upon his life, Patrick sought to live a life in daily communion with God, as he puts it in Confession 16. After I came to Ireland, every day I had to tend sheep, and many times a day I prayed. The love of God and his fear came to me more and more, and my faith was strengthened, and my spirit was moved, so in a single day I would say as many as a hundred prayers, and almost as many in the night, and this even when I was staying in the woods and on the mountain. 
And I used to get up a prayer before daylight, through snow, through frost, through rain, and I felt no harm, and there was no sloth in me, as I now see, because the spirit of in me was then fervent. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of church history, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.